Hello, this is Jonah Bennett, and I'm joined by a special guest on the podcast for this week, Muya Musikatwane, who is talking to us today about the new city he's developing in Zambia. Muya, thanks for joining us. Why don't you give the listeners a brief introduction to yourself and the project, and, and then we'll get started. Sure. Um, so I'm uh, William Sokotwani, like Jonah just mentioned. I am the co-founder of uh, Tebe Investment Management and Frontier Capital Partners. Um, we're working on developing a new city in Zambia, about a half-hour drive um, out of the uh, capital city of Zambia, that's uh, Lusaka, and I've been working on this project for the last five years. So let's start with uh, just the, the, the basics of, of kind of like how you got onto the project. I noticed you, you went to the UK for, for school for a while, but then decided to uh, come back to Zambia after you finished your studies. And, and one question I had about that actually is, is brain drain is not exactly an uncommon phenomenon, especially a very talented individual. So uh, I'm curious what motivated you to return to Zambia and, and do development there? Um, so it was really a function of a couple of things. So I, I had graduated out of a master's program at the time and I was looking for work and uh, I ended up working at this uh, tech startup in London actually. And I was in business development and I did that for about a year or so. Um, and, um, you know, I actually enjoyed the work. It was fun. Um, and whilst doing that, I started a, a company of my own. Um, it was a, a cloud uh, services company, actually. And um, we raised about 30K in um, seed capital at the time. And uh, we built a prototype. But unfortunately, we weren't able to raise any follow-on funding. So um, I sort of found myself in this position where I was out of a job. Um, but sort of like part-time working for this other company um, and starting to think about my options and you know, sort of like gave it a really strong, hard think. And it was apparent to me that the thing about the UK, as is the case with most fairly developed countries, is that a lot of the hard work in making those countries um, advanced societies has been done already. Um, and so my contributions... Um, even if they were to be significant, which you know was questionable, um, would on a net basis be sort of like insignificant um, relative to the needs um, of society overall. Um, sort of taking a very global perspective there, um, and so I realized that you know going back to Zambia, where I was from, um, and where I had stronger relationships with people, and where I had uh, some assets as well um, through my family. Uh, made a lot more sense and uh, I would be able to be in a position where I could contribute in a way that was probably much more reflective of my abilities um, given the fact that you know it's a, it's a significantly less advanced um, society we have here. So let's talk about uh, Nikwashi a bit as such. It's one of the largest developments uh, on the continent, uh, but I think uh, maybe one of the largest in Zambia, particularly, if not the largest. It's probably the second largest in Zambia. There's another development that's being built by a large mining company, um, which is a little bit larger than ours, um, but then they're also backed by uh, you know a large multinational, um, so that's uh, 
pretty key difference. Um, but continentally speaking, yeah, I think we're definitely up there in the top 10. Once it's finished, um, what is the carrying capacity? Once completed, we're going to have about 100,000 people living and working at Nkwashi. Let's talk about the, the structure of the thing a little bit. Um, so would you consider this a, a, a charter city or a real estate development? How, how do you conceive of the project? Um, I, I think it's much more a charter city than a real estate development. And, and the reason is we have to think about a number of things that most developers typically don't have to spend much time worrying about um, because they're a function of their site selection, right? So the sort of like traditional real estate developer won't build a new development in the middle of nowhere, which is in many ways what we're doing. Um, so right. Nkwashi is a ranch, uh, or rather has historically been a ranch, um, and it's a half hour out of Lusaka uh, in, in a very agricultural part um, of, uh, I guess, the peri-urban area. Um, most developers would, would not build anything there. Um, and so typically a developer will take a site that's in a, in a CBD or a node within a city that's up and coming with right. uh, existing economic activity so they can anchor their, uh, their leases or um, you know, give their investors some comfort that this is bankable. Um, yeah, buy, buy an existing metro stop, etc. Exactly. Um, that's not what we're doing with Nkwashi. Uh, it, it's, it's much more greenfield than that. Uh, and, and so as a consequence of that, we're also having to think about things like how do we seed an economy there? How can we build a thriving ecosystem of entrepreneurs? And um, how do we solve for all the factors of production and things of that sort? So I think those are things that uh, are much more typical with local government than they are with um, real estate development. And, and so um, I think that's a critical distinction. Um, that being said, we also have to be very cognizant of economic realities as far as making this commercially viable is concerned. Um, and so uh, we are selling real estate. Um, we have to then sell the, those you know, subdivisions or leases um, at, at valuations that are reflective of the cost of developing those parcels of land or, or, or buildings. Um, and um, you know, that's a, a very traditional approach to real estate development and investing that we're taking on on that particular side of things. When we're thinking of the, 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 the differences between real estate development and, and, and charter cities, there's also some suggestion that there might be a, a, a distinction between uh, host society governance and, and this development's governance. So are there any, are, are, do you have separate criminal law or do you have separate commercial law or is that uh, not, not a consideration on your mind at this time? Um, so we're working with the Charter City Institute uh, and they're working with the Zambia Development Agency to introduce Charter City policy in mm -hmm. Zambia. Um, so the country presently has special economic zone laws um, and the Charter City Institute is working with the, uh, the Zambia Development Agency, which is the, the body that takes care of special economic zones, um, to enhance the existing regulatory framework to allow for charter cities uh, as the CCI envisions them. Um, 
but that's you know that's something that's happening at a very high level. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah so yeah. you know we've been a part of that process and you know we've helped facilitate where we can, but um, it's not something that we're fundamentally banking on to make this project right. work. Um, I, I think I take the view that we have to be very pragmatic in how we approach this. So on the one hand, yes, we are um, very much pro charter city legislation uh, to the extent it allows for. So like local government level autonomy, where we can operate as a municipal uh, mm -hmm. government, but as a, a private actor at the, you know, at the same time. So this would not be full autonomy because we, uh, we, we don't necessarily think that's the way to go. Uh, you know, it's probably a more dangerous idea, if anything. Right. Um, right. Our approach is that, you know, think about New York City if it was a private estate, you know. Um, that's the approach that we're taking with this. Um, and you know, think of New York City if it was a private estate and could uh, tax its residents, uh, but the residents, if they didn't really like it, could, could move wherever they wanted, they still had to pay federal taxes, and so on and so forth. Um, that's, that's the approach we're taking. Um, and a lot of what is sort of like envisioned within um, the sort of like concept of charter cities is in some ways already possible through existing treaties that nation states have with each other, right? Yes. So um, through uh, double taxation treaties, it's possible to port um, where a company pays its taxes. So it doesn't have to pay local taxes, it could pay its taxes in its home country. Um, it's also possible through these uh, sort of like legislative treaties to decide where conflicts are resolved. So just because you're operating in Zambia doesn't necessarily mean that commercial law has to be reflective of Zambian standards. If there's a conflict with your suppliers or with other residents, you could choose to adjudicate those or arbitrate those in a foreign jurisdiction that's chosen by the party. So uh, that could be you know, South Africa or Mauritius or Singapore or London or the US. Um, you know, all that infrastructure exists as, as things stand today. And so our approach is much more uh, iterative in that the first version of what we're going to be doing uh, will rely a lot on the existing body of treaties and laws that allow for uh, deportation of certain elements of uh, governance that people you know, tend to want to see in, uh, in a jurisdiction. So if they, they want to be tax efficient, um, Zambia or many other countries have got laws that allow for a country to set up base in another country that has a double taxation treaty with it. Um, if, the, if it's about you know, conflict resolution, there's treaties for that and so on and so forth. How would law enforcement in this case work? Like, let's suppose you are granted municipal status, that, that Nikwashi is granted municipal status. Um, would, would you have the ability to then constitute your own police force or is that federally managed or? Um, so it's, it's both is probably the answer. Uh, so on the one hand, we provide for our own baseline security. So everyone that uh, enters in Kwashi has to check in digitally. Uh, so we have the ID, uh, we know who they mm -hmm. are, um, and they also have to check out when they leave. Um, and this you know, it's a very smooth process, it just takes seconds to happen. Um, and once the city is populated, we'll also have private security basically doing the patrolling uh, and basic law enforcement. So if there's a, a crime that takes place, there would then 
reprimand um, the would-be criminal there or the actual criminal uh, and keep them in holding for a few hours, uh, whilst at the very same time, very quickly notify the police about what's happened, mm-hmm. um, take a statement, uh, have a record of the facts, uh, and then hand over uh, the case and uh, custody of the individual offender or, or the witnesses to the state so that you know from that point on it becomes something that the state deals with. Um, so we'll be taking on frontline uh, responsibilities, whereas the actual uh, criminal law enforcement would be uh, a matter for the state to resolve. Yeah, this makes th- that that makes sense. I mean, that that's uh, a sort of similar arrangement that you see in a lot of large commercial developments. Um, they'll have their own private security and then just a liaison relationship with uh, state police. Um, so, in in terms of the the overall development, um, what what is the relationship between uh, resident voice and the way governance works in Nikwashi? Like, how, how do the do the residents have a say? If so, what kind of say? I'm kind of just curious of the relationship there. So this is a work in progress. Um, so because this is our first city, um, we're taking a much more cautious approach to things um, and optimizing for the things that we know will probably be uh, immediately problematic. So an example is um, design standards and aesthetics are set by us and enforced by us. Yeah. Um, and there's very little voice that residents have uh, where that's concerned. Um, they can, if they really object, uh, provide us with alternative designs, but we still have the final say. So we scrutinize them fairly. Um, and if we feel that you know, there's a lot of consistency with our preferred styles, um, we approve those. Um, but if there isn't, we reserve the right to say no. And I, I think that's the approach that we're taking with basically everything, which is our first call to action is to say we're, you know, we, we feel that it's more appropriate for us to have firm control over how the community evolves and to the extent that the residents can uphold the values that we want this community to yes. be known for, um, yes. then we can sort of open up gover- governance to them at that stage. But initially, it's, it's fairly closed. Right. So this would apply to two cases of whether they wanted to uh, do remodeling on their home, for example, and they decided that they wanted to take it into a, a very different architectural style than the one that was generally uh, promulgated in the in the community, and they might submit designs to you, and you would say, "No, I mean that's a very discordant design. It doesn't cohere with the rest of the project." Uh, sorry, I mean that if if that's the case, I mean uh, that that obviously does make sense um, because oftentimes what might work for an individual and what they might prefer has uh, certain aggregate effects that go beyond that individual that they might not necessarily care about, but it, it does, it does uh, you know, have an effect on everyone else. Uh, so is, is that kind of what you have in mind? That's exactly what we have in mind. So, um, you know, again, Zambia is a developing country. Um, and, and so the, speaking again in very realistic terms here, um, people have only really been building uh, so, like European style homes for the last give or take 110 mm-hmm. years, 
before that, the aesthetics were very uh, so like uh, simple, right? And so we we can't take a view um, to say, "Hey guys, um, do whatever you want," because it could literally be anything. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. So you obviously have some kind of design in mind. I've, I've seen, there are some architectural firms involved. Uh, tell me about the selection process for for the firms and what style you've decided should predominate in Nikwashi and and how you came to that decision. And then I, I'd like to get into some of your thoughts about, about urbanism and walkability, but let's first start with that. Cool. Um, so again, we weren't extremely sophisticated in our approach to a lot of these questions initially. Uh, we're being very mm -hmm. pragmatic and it was a question of proximity as well. So it's like, okay, who are the really good architects that we know of uh, and how much do they charge for their work? Um, and you know, do we like their work? Uh, and so we did a survey and looked in Zambia, we looked in South Africa, um, and we settled on a company that did uh, a lot of work for um, the World Cup that was held in South Africa in 2010. Um, we liked their aesthetic, we liked the sort of like eye for detail, and they'd done a lot of work in Europe as well. So we felt that they sort of like heritage uh, to pull something like this off, so we chose them to do this. Um, as far as architectural styles are concerned, because the, the end user in this instance isn't really us, mm -hmm. it's um, the people who choose to live in Kwashi. We had to be fairly accommodative of what we thought were contemporary styles that people seem to gravitate towards. Um, and so we chose Mediterranean styles and uh, so like uh, prairie styles, which are fairly common in the US. Um, and uh, so like very modern cubist style where you've got nice straight lines and uh, it's monocolor, so it's like just all white, um, stuff like that. And so um, we settled on those three as the design aesthetics that we prefer. Mm -hmm. uh, and we came up with 12 um, prototype designs that people could then um, adopt um, or use as a basis for inspiration for uh, third-party architects to then uh, build new designs for them. Um, so it was, it was very pragmatic um, from start to finish. So there, I noticed on the, the, the map of the city, the perspective map of the city, that there are different residential sections uh, that are divided uh, into separate areas. Um, so are you going to mandate that there are very distinct styles or uh, uh, between them, or, or can anyone from any section choose any of the listed designs available? Um, so we didn't want to uh, create way too much uh, heterogeneity across the right. whole thing. So whilst there's several um, suburbs and districts within the overall town plan, um, we didn't envision that there'll be a lot of uh, differences in the sort of like styling that people choose. So we don't have one style for one suburb and another for another mm -hmm. suburb, for example. Um, rather, what we intend to do across the various um, suburbs is um, use landscaping and, and art to try and create the, the, you know, the feeling of difference between the two. Um, so as an example, um, we have a suburb called Eagle, which is in uh, Tau uh, district, and Tau means lion in a Southern African language. Um, and this lion 
district. Um, you've got three suburbs, so it's Eagle, Canary, and Swift. Um, so the idea would be at the sort of like key entrance and exit points in the Eagle uh, suburb, you probably have like, uh, like totems of sorts, um, which would be placed at so sort of like entry and exit roads, which makes it very clear that you're entering this suburb. Um, and in addition to that, we'll then take a, a view on the aesthetic of the landscaping. So you could have a lot of rocks and cactus in one, and in another you could have a lot of like uh, uh, succulents, uh, so like almost creeping succulents, and, and, but no rocks um, and such like. So, you know, someone who's driving through would notice the differences and could tell that they've moved from one suburb to another, um, but there'll be enough homogeneity between those three because they're part of the same district that you know you're still in this particular line district. Um, uh, it's, it's very difficult to imagine without a visual representation, right, sure. but um, that's the basic idea. Um, so uh, again, uh, so like going back to the idea of the fact that this is being built in Africa, um, we don't want it to feel like it's in Europe. Sure. Um, it, it, we don't want it to feel like it's in South America either or some other continent. So we, we want it to feel very African or rather representative of what Africa perhaps um, ought to look like and feel like versus, you know, what it is, which is often so like uh, cookie cutter design aesthetics and stuff um, imported from elsewhere in the world and then just uh, dropped here. Um, so we think landscapes are much more organic uh, a means of um, communicating that idea. So how do you view the relationship between cars and other methods of transportation, bicycles or, or, or walking? Is there an intent to explicitly design the community to prioritize walking or prioritize cars? I'm curious on your thoughts about that. So um, unfortunately right now we have to prioritize Mm -hmm. cars um, and that's largely a function of where the consumer psychology is right now and uh, cars are sort of like a status symbol people want to yeah. own them people want to drive places and so on and so forth um, so there has to be loads of roads everywhere there has to be um, a lot of land committed to people's parking on their plots and stuff like that um, that's not ideal though but because this is our first uh, city development undertaking, we have to take into consideration people's yep. desires. Um, but our, our hope is that in the next um, projects that we do, um, we wouldn't have to do so. Um, hopefully because we would have shown success with this first development um, and that would demonstrate that we have some credibility in the choices that we make. Um, and hopefully that would attract the type of resident that prefers walkability um, over uh, so like locomotive mobility. I'm sure that th this is about 30 minutes, I think you said, outside of, uh, outside of Lusaka. Has the development process started yet? Yeah, so we've been building roads for the last couple of years. Uh, we've built a dam, we've built a park. Um, we were meant to get started on building university campus last year, but we faced some delays, so that's happening now this year. Uh, yeah, we're building up energy infrastructure. Um, yeah, so it, it's coming along pretty nicely. Yeah, it's been a big learning experience. Uh, so like right. learning how to build stuff, but 
all that's happening. So what would you say is the, I, I mean, I imagine that, you know, since this is the sec- first or second largest, I think you said second largest development in Zambia that people are starting to pay some amount of attention. So what's what's some of the feedback you hear in the community or, or what are people's general thoughts about this? Who are the kinds of people who are interested in, in living in a city like this? So most of our uh, residents um, are sort of like very middle class Zambians. So, so professionals mm-hmm. for the most part. Uh, so medical professionals like nurses and doctors, uh, lawyers, teachers. Um, a lot of them tend to work in the civil service. Um, so like doctors and nurses and, and teachers, for example. Um, we also have, uh, interesting, we skew towards more women than men. So um, we have more buyers of property that are ladies than, than gentlemen. Um, so that was pretty interesting and cool. Um, yeah. I want to discuss something that was mentioned on the Tebe investment site. Uh, and it says um, our vision is to advance African civilization. And I'm, I'm interested in learning more about how you conceive of uh, Zambia's relationship to the rest of Africa and, and how you conceive of African civilization in general. I know that you discussed a little bit of that already in terms of uh, making a conscious effort to have uh, an architectural style that's that's appropriate to Africa as opposed to you know just grafted from different places around the world but uh, there seems to be uh, a conscious philosophy driving this this project and I, I'd love to hear more about that cool um, I guess there's loads of levels to that uh, that mission of ours um, so I'll start with the idea of I guess, cultural esteem, uh, which is how a society sees itself and what it believes about itself and how it feels about itself. Um, And all great societies in the world over the course of history have built very large monuments to themselves, largely because that's how they felt about themselves, right? So from the Romans to the Egyptians to uh, even the US, um, those monuments exist to, to make a point uh, both to members of those societies as well as the rest of the world. Um, and I think that's a fundamentally important thing to do because what it says to everyone is that you care about yourself. Um, it's sort of like the equivalent of bothering to wear clothes before you go out uh, and start <laughs> yeah. your day. Right? So um, I think it's really important. Now when a society doesn't do that, what it in essence is saying is that it doesn't really know who it is or what it is. Um, and it doesn't necessarily feel important about itself. Um, and I think that's basically where Africa is coming from. Where, um, yeah, basically, the, the last 50 years of Africa's history have been very experimental. It's, it's Africans trying to figure out their place in the world um, post the colonial mm-hmm. experience. But in many ways, that process has itself been very contrived because a lot of these countries didn't exist prior to the colonial experience, right? So as an example, Zambia, you know, Zambia's borders were decided in Berlin, right? Um, They weren't decided here by Zambians or people who lived in Zambia. Uh, And that was the case for many African countries. Um, It was basically a gentleman's agreement between what were then global powers. Um, 
And so you had all these ethnicities, which were all, for the most part, their own little kingdoms, suddenly finding themselves in this position where they have to uh, come to terms with the fact that they're seen as one thing when they're right. not. Um, and they have to learn this one common language, which isn't necessarily consistent with how they see the world or how they think. Uh, it doesn't necessarily, it doesn't reflect their humor. So a lot of times Africans will say, for example, that jokes at the hotel in their natural languages don't translate in English. It just isn't funny. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. the, you know, those things are reflective of the identity crisis that people um, have. Now, there's nothing that we can do today about that because history unfolded the way it did um, and the countries exist the way they do now. But there, there are things that private actors like ourselves can do to try and remedy aspects of the problem. And I think one of those things that can be done is building stuff. Um, if we can build things as people who, um, you know, unfortunately we're seen as uh, sort of like three-fifths a person, right? Um, and we can do things at a level which is consistent with global standards and the best of, uh, best in class um, elsewhere in the world. I think what it proves to people here is that anyone can actually do this stuff um, and that they also have worth and they need to also build stuff. And so it's sort of like setting an example that other people could hopefully um, use as a basis to also do their own things and pursue their own dreams and ambitions uh, and start remedying that um, cultural esteem problem. Um, so that's the psychological aspect of things. Uh, the sort of like economic and forward-looking aspect of things is that the world is sort of like gravitating towards this uh, new normal where economies are increasingly larger and larger. So the US, for example, is a continent-sized country with a continent-sized economy. Um, China is a continent-sized country with a continental-sized economy. And the same is increasingly true of India. Uh, and to the extent that Europe can uh, increasingly consolidate its political infrastructure um, to match up with you know, what it says is true about itself, um, that will happen there. So the EU will become truly one economy, one polity, and so on and so forth. Uh, but Africa remains very fragmented. It's, a, it's 54 different countries, um, and all these 54 different countries are effectively the equivalent of streets in the US as far as the economies are concerned, right? So like Zambia has $30 billion in GDP. There's probably skyscrapers in New York with more GDP than Zambia does. Um, South Africa has got about three to $400 billion of GDP, which is approximately about Houston or Miami in the US. Um, New York and LA alone is like $2 trillion of GDP and that's all right. of Africa. Um, and so if, People like me uh, and others leave it up to policymakers and, and political actors to decide Africa's future, then it's going to be another two centuries uh, before we see any meaningful development here. Um, and so my take is actors like myself uh, in a position to hopefully build cities like this to the extent that we could build networks of them across the whole continent. Um, could potentially create large economies within these economies, which hopefully over time can become, you know, either significant contributors to the local economy in, in that particular city or, or in that particular country, or even bigger economies than the 
countries themselves. Um, and then we can start building towards uh, a sort of future that the average person on the streets can probably be proud of and say, hey, you know, we can actually look at Singapore straight in the eye and say, we did what you guys did. Um, so uh, we can have some esteem about ourselves. Um, whereas if we continue on the path we're on, where economies, you know, with 3% population growth are growing at 4% mm -hmm. per annum um, economically, um, we're going to have significant social problems in Africa. Now, Z Zambia is a, a landlocked country and it's, it, it it's, has neighbors like Tanzania, Malawi, Mozambique, Zimbabwe, etc. Et and it goes on. Um, how do Zambians and how do you think of yourself relative to those other countries? Do you think that the identity is fairly distinct or is it is it uh, is it shared enough that you think that they're basically I'm, I'm interested in uh, Zambia's self-conception of itself relative to its neighbors and then relative to to Africa as a whole so I, I guess there's a couple layers to that question and uh, rather it's, it's answer so a lot of African countries are similar to Europe in that you have ethnicities that are split be between borders, yeah. right? So it's like, the, you know, uh, in Zambia, as an example, uh, on the eastern side, um, we're adjacent to Malawi, and the majority of the population in Malawi are in a city called the Chewa, and that's a pretty significant part of Zambia as well, that ethnicity. Um, on the western side of Zambia, the ethnicity, uh, the ethnicity there is the Lozi, and they can be found in Angola as well as in uh, Namibia and a little bit in Botswana as well. Um, on the northwestern, the same is true of the people there, the Luvales and the um, Kaondes and so on and so forth. They're, they're in the Congo as well as in Zambia and in Angola. Um, and so, um, and that's true also in the Copper Belt and in the northern province where the Bemba ethnicity crosses borders. Um, my point is that you know the the self conception of identity in Africa, in my opinion, is much more fluid than most people um, would probably think it is, um, and this varies from country to country. So in, in Southern Africa, I think uh, Zambia's neighbors and Zambia probably share that uh, that notion. Uh, in South Africa, it's probably less true, but even for them. Uh, it would be true to the extent that they're looking at themselves relative to their neighbors, right? So in South Africa, um, the Swatis um, are found both in Iswatini and in South Africa. The Sotos are found both in Lesotho and in South Africa. The Tswanas in Botswana and in South Africa. Um, and yeah, so that's, that's the story across most of Africa. So I noticed you, you mentioned something about uh, the development of of great projects is sort of like a symbol of of uh, self-regard and 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 self-confidence uh is that applied to the entire development as such or do you plan on uh building particular monuments inside nakwashi that that communicate that vision um so as with many things we're doing, it's a very iterative process. Right. Yeah. So our near-term objectives are much more sort of like brick and mortar. So we just want to get roads built. We want to have water and sanitation systems built. 
uh, and so on and so forth. So that's like our immediate focus. Yes. Um, and then in addition to that, um, we also want to focus a lot on the education uh, segment of Inquashi. So building out the schools, uh, building out uh, the tech hub that, we're, uh, that we just launched this week, uh, building out the university that we'll be uh, launching later this year. Um, and we think actually that in the very long term, that has way more significance than any monuments we could build because if we can, A, uh, create graduates who have global level competence, right? And yeah. hopefully in the like 90th percentile and up of their global peers, as far as their capabilities are concerned, then that in itself is a monument uh, enough, right? Because it means that able to work with the best and the brightest in the world, uh, earn an income uh, globally, but living at Inkwashi. Uh, and so they'll be working remotely. So that would be a great win for us. And it's also one that we can then export to other cities that we build in other countries. So in the very like medium to long term, the hope is that we can build up other cities uh, across Africa and take that network of um, tech hubs and, and uh, uh, sort of like education service infrastructure uh, to those countries. But in the, in the broader scheme of things, uh, building up monuments that speak to um, both the local heritage of the, the places that we're building in, um, as well as the much more sort of like pan-Africanist mm -hmm. um, vision that we're building towards um, is important. Um, but we also don't necessarily take this, this very sort of like uh, African nationalist view where it's, it's just about you know, blackness. Um, that's not our approach. So we're also very globalist in how we look at this. So um, this ultimately is about celebrating people who have been involved in building Africa's future, regardless of their race, regardless of where they were doing it. Um, and just making that, you know, something that we can memorialize. Um, so that could be John F. Kennedy, it could be Abraham Lincoln, it could be uh, William Wilberforce. Um, all those particular actors could still be celebrated um, regardless of their heritage. But the point is that we're making a case for people not forgetting the past as they build the future. Right. Now let's talk about, you mentioned the, the university. Do you have a... You, some of the construction will be occurring later this year. Is there a particular university that, that intends to have their site there? So we're actually developing that ourselves. Um, okay. Yeah. And, and for the uh, sort of like primary schools, is, is that a, a, a project of yours as well? Yeah. So we, we started off by launching a small pilot school um, in Lusaka proper. Um, so it was a nursery school initially, and then organically it's been mm -hmm. adding years. Um, so it now goes all the way to fifth grade, I think. Um, and basically what we're going to do is take that school and then just plop it at Nkwashi. What's interesting about all of this is, is that as we're looking at the different kind of parts of the city, it, 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 a picture starts to slowly emerge that this is actually a... a you know whether legally or not in function it's a it's a it's an actual city state legally i could never say that because that's not uh you know i don't want to die sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um but you know the way i sort of like envision what we're doing is that um, governance has to evolve um 
with society and uh, the reality is that um, if everything is all left to central governments and local governments to do, um, you know, things will never just progress as fast as they could. Um, so in practice, a lot of the things that we're having to think about are reflective of that sort of like idea, right? So we're thinking about education, we're thinking about healthcare, we're thinking about public goods uh, outside of those uh, sort of like human focused services, so like roads, um, we're thinking about parks, um, street lighting, um, we're having to think about how we secure the place, right? So like, you know, making sure there's security, uh, keeping everybody safe. Um, mm -hmm. How, you know, we're thinking about how to create a balance of payments for the city, right? So it's like, okay, if your economy is fragile, which is the case in Zambia, um, and you are a satellite city of a, of a town, which itself is a function of the broader economy, right? Um, it only means that you would be even more fragile than uh, the city that you are a satellite of, uh, which is itself a subset of the broader economy. Um, and so our solution for dealing with that is um, to export knowledge to the rest of the world through the tech hub that we're building. So we want to create a skilled labor force that could work for global companies, but from Zambia, and so earn USD or euros or, or you know, Japanese yen or whatever, uh, but from here. Um, we're you know, going to be investing in uh, tech startups that want to build globally oriented services but have their base of operation for the most part in Inkwashi. Um, and what that does is, is it optimizes for the factors of production. So we're, we're solving for entrepreneurship, we're solving for labor, we're solving for land by you know, sort of building the city. Um, and we have to do all those things because um, we, we don't want to be held hostage to the economy we exist in. So does that tech hub exist uh, currently in, in Lusaka or is it in Kwashi? Um, so we launched the tech hub this week and its first hub is in uh, Lusaka. Um, that's largely because we're only going to start building out the, um, the offices and the housing for this uh, in the next couple months at Nkwashi. Um So the idea is we actually get it moving we you know we actually have enrollments we have startups that we're supporting um and then off the back of all of that economic activity we can then move the entire platform to Nkwashi. given this ramp up that is the sort of maybe core for now of what draws people to Nkwashi. it's what it brings uh money in it's what uh provides a, a good space to invest in uh, locally and, and from abroad, um, and that could get a lot of residents moving to Nkwashi. Is that, that sort of your idea of it? Yeah, that's definitely the idea. So, um, you know, the first five years was basically all of early adopters who basically just, you know, were motivated by the idea of owning a home. Um, so yes. it was for about 60% of them, it was their first property purchase. Uh, Zambia also has a very deep uh, and significant um, real estate deficit, so people generally don't have access to property ownership, um, so there's a structural demand for it. Um, but in the next phase of the development's life, um, we believe that a lot of people who will be uh, choosing to be part of what we're doing won't necessarily be buying it into the development uh, because they're motivated to live there themselves. Rather, we, our view is that they'll probably be 
developing property to rent to other people. So this would be uh, people building student housing, people building rental housing for mm -hmm. staff, uh, people who work for the startups, people who work for the university, people who work at the schools and so on and so forth, uh, people who will be um, co-owners in retail centers and uh, such like uh, office buildings. Um, and so creating that pool of, of liquidity um, that enables those developments to actually uh, come to life um, is probably going to be where a lot of the activity will be um, the next few years. So what's the rough timeline for uh, Nikwashi's development in terms of moving some residents in? I mean, I imagine by the time it's ready to move some residents in, the entire project won't be finished, but it, it, it will be sufficient enough for people to start you know, moving from Lusaka to Nikwashi. So I'm, I'm just curious about timelines. Um, so our first residents move in this year, actually. Um, so we have, I think, uh, about six people um, who are likely to start living in Kwashi in the next two to three months. And another Amazing. two to 300 people who are about ready to start building their homes. Um, and so over the next three, four years, I imagine the population will easily be about you know, 1,000 to 2,000 people. So in the meantime, the, those, those first six people would be uh, commuting to Lusaka for, for work is, is, because they, the economy isn't set up locally enough for there to be sort of like internal uh, work to be done. Exactly. So another question that this raises to me is, um, I think what you view as the relationship between small cities and, and states, like do, will small cities strengthen or, or, or weaken states? And like, if you look historically, many states altogether originate from cities in the first place, whether uh, France from Paris, Mexico from Mexico City, et cetera. So do you, do you see eventually Nikwashi scaling up to, to something um, a lot, a lot bigger and a lot more than what it is currently. Um, so, I think overall, you know, strong cities enable the states that they exist in to be stronger um, because they create economic activity, uh, they create inventions, they create culture, and all those type of things. And you know, that's that's great for the broader community. Um, I think the way Nkwashi sort of like plays out over the next, um, so if I'm being ambitious, let's, let's call it 100 years, um, would be that we build out a network of these type of cities. Um, so we don't necessarily mm -hmm. consolidate all that population into one place. Um, rather, we, we could have maybe three cities in Zambia, maybe, um, another three in you know, the countries adjacent to Zambia uh, per country. Um, and then, you know, perhaps if opportunities to acquire land in places like India uh, and Pakistan and, and uh, Indonesia and such places allow, um, we could build cities there as well um, because they face very similar demographic challenges to Zambia and the rest of Africa. Um, and, and so what we end up having is a pan-African network of these cities um, and hopefully maybe uh, an African slash Asian network of the cities. Um, I think that's how this plays out. And, and so to the extent that over the course of Africa's uh, next 80 years, right, where its population will go from about 1.4 billion people today to about 
four to five billion people uh, by the close of the century. If we could have upwards of, let's say, 100 to 300 million people living in these private cities in Africa alone, um, I think that'll be mm-hmm. sort of like the moonshot. That, that would be like the biggest win. Um, right. But that wouldn't necessarily be us saying we want to create a nation state or a city you know, state network. Um, that's not at all what we want to do. Because right? I think what we'd rather have is the existing nation states be more stronger. Um, but we would also prefer f- for there to be a lot more integration between countries within Africa. And to the extent that these cities can help make a much more um, urbane culture, uh, so like uh, get created and, and persist and facilitate for that, uh, that would be great. So tell me about, you mentioned the, the Asian element of this city's network. Tell me more about that. Um, so it's not anything that we're thinking about actively today um, because we are sort of like knees deep and trying to just figure out this one project. Um, yeah. But, you know, in my wildest dreams, if, you know, this were to play out um, perfectly and we had unlimited amounts of capital to do what we enjoy doing, um, I yeah. think we'd definitely want to build cities in Asia because there's enough population there to allow for that. There's enough population growth into the medium and long term to um, make this a need for which there's demand. Um, and our experience building these projects um, or this first project in Africa would suggest that the experience in Asia, particularly Anglophone Asia, would be fairly similar. One thing I'm interested in, in going back to, to sort of slowly wrap things up a little bit, is to discuss again um, the issue of, of African civilization and, and identity formation in places like like Zambia. So there there is an, an organic element to it in the sense that you would expect through the development of these city projects that some amount of organic culture would emerge. But I'm curious how active uh, and explicit you intend or are interested in, in being and doing um, when it comes to uh, the, the formation of, of what it means to be Zambian or, or what it means uh, to be African or uh, what African civilization is and, and, and so on, because it, it's true that some amount of this can be done just as a result of, of people interacting with each other in a very organic way. But often you find that a lot of uh, state identity is actually, when you, when you peer under the hood, it's actually as a result of conscious state cultural investment. And you could imagine something being done on on a city level as well in terms of you know concrete investment into cultural creation for the formation of a particular identity that actually has it's it's not for no economic purpose the economic purpose is is to i guess p- keep people grounded and attract more people to that city so i'm i'm curious what your I'm interested in what your thought process is is around that area. Um, yeah, well, it's something we've given some thought, and we think that art and culture, or the art and institutions of culture, um, which typically are artistic in their sort of like uh, constitution, um, are the way to sort of like play that out. Um, part of it is about building out an education system that 
um, facilitates for people who gravitate towards the arts to excel at whatever it is they enjoy doing, be it dance, uh, be it visual arts, um, be it music, um, etc. You know, enabling them to A, excel, B, to actually build a living doing what they enjoy, um, and then to feel a sense of esteem from other people, um, particularly people from elsewhere in the world, um, with respect to the things that they do. Um, and then memorializing those. So an example would be, um, we intend to build out an art gallery um, uh, mm -hmm. in the park that we've already built. Um, and we'll be creating arts, um, so art from local artists in Zambia there. Um, so that will give people a chance to sort of see what's being done. Um, it helps the artists feel like their work is important. Um, but the next step of that particular project which is being run by a sort of separate company actually, is to uh, enable those artists to sell their art globally. So someone could be sitting anywhere else in the world and then they could pay for the art. Um, and right now a lot of these artists are completely dependent on the local art market um, for transactions. Uh, and so volumes tend to be very small because there's only so much liquidity. Um, but to the extent that people like that could actually sell their art uh, to people sitting elsewhere in the world, I think what it does to them is it makes them feel like uh, there's a lot more buy-in um, to their craft uh, and you know, yeah. enables them to actually feel worthwhile. Um, and so then you know, that could be extended across all the different artistic expressions that exist um, from fashion to you know, pottery to um, you know, dance and so on and so forth. Well, um, I think that's an amazing summation of the project that you guys are developing um and I, I wish it well and i'm very excited to hear that residents are starting to move in and uh we'll ha we'll, we'll be sure to have you on the the podcast again to to talk about uh how nikwashi's development is progressing but in the meantime muya thank you so much for coming on the show thank you for having me talk soon cheers